So we're all biased because we all have preferences. It's only when those biases get in the way of making fair decisions or cause people to behave in ways that are discriminatory or excluding others just because of their differences, that's when it becomes a problem in the workplace. Hello, I'm Tariq Omeri, and I'm a learning and development scientist. I welcome my weekly podcast series, Mind the Learning Gap, in which we will be covering what is trending in the world of learning and talent development, solutions, and challenges for education programs and training delivery, in addition to sharing useful tips of good practices in this field. If you are working in learning and development, training, instructional design, or professional development, or are thinking of starting in the field, then this webcast series would be for you. So let's start. Welcome back to Minding the Learning Gap, a podcast about learning and professional development in the workplace. The starting point of which, of course, is to create inclusive and welcoming environment at work which is why I'm glad to welcome today Anzela Haider, a corporate trainer whose mission is to create training that increases awareness about inclusion, closing the gender gap, and combating bias in the workplace. Anzela, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your work? Of course. Um, so like you've already said, um, I'm Anzela Haider, and I'm an organizational psychologist uh, based in Hague. I run my own company called ThriveQ. I work as a consultant in companies. I offer training, workshops, and advice if they're looking to improve diversity and create more inclusive workplaces. Um, and within that work, I support leaders and employees during times of change and more generally with employee well-being as well. And separately, I work with individuals to offer counseling and coaching. So that's in a sort of a nutshell all that I do. Exciting. But I'll have to admit, the first time I heard the term occupational psychologist, I had to look into what it means and what it's all about. Um, so maybe can you tell us a bit about what would someone in that role would do? Why should organizations and businesses work with someone who carries that title? Well, that's a fair question, and I can understand if it doesn't sound so straightforward. Um, occupational psychology is basically the study of human behavior in the workplace. So as an occupational psychologist or organizational psychologist, um, I apply theory and knowledge from the field of psychology into how workplaces are run. So organizational psychologists will do a wide range of things from um, seeing how an organization can be more effective, uh, more productive, and looking, for example, at how organizations can improve motivation and hence job performance, um, looking at um, increasing job satisfaction, employee engagement, all well, that kind of thing. And my personal sort of the area of work, or rather I want to say the umbrella that all my work falls under, is very much around creating inclusive workspaces. This is what something that you said when we first started as well. And I don't mean that just from an angle of gender and diversity, which is a very hot topic these days, and it's definitely a key area of my work, but I also look wider or broader at the issue. Um, so for me, I look at creating more inclusive workplaces by addressing unconscious bias, um, by supporting people to be more emotionally intelligent, improving communication, that sort of thing. Um, and I'm also very, very passionate about mental health and how organizations can support employees with their overall mental health and well-being. And I think that's become even more relevant now in this current situation of how we're working. Like, how do we support people on how to manage stress, um, build resilience, prevent burnout? I think all these matters are quite important because improving overall wellness increases creativity, 
which in turn improves job performance and which is why I think it's interesting for organizations and businesses because it helps them to retain and also attract talent. I absolutely agree. Um, improving wellness increases creativity and you're absolutely right about this being especially more important now in the age of remote working. Yeah. In one of our earlier conversations, you mentioned that in the workshop that you organize, you focus on the long-term behavior change. And I'm curious, what is your strategy to ensure such workshops achieve this? And I mean, making the long-term impact in changing behavior. <laughs> okay, I feel that if I said that, I'd give away the secret ingredient. Um, so I won't do that. But more generally, I mean, you know, you work in L&D yourself. So you know that learning transfer is the most challenging part of any learning or development program, right? Just before, because I offer training or a company or runs a training that's created by me, I can't say that everybody in the room will take away the exact same content or learning in the way I intended, right? Just because we offer it doesn't mean that's what's gone away. Um, so the challenge always is, how do we embed this? How do we make the changes that we're trying to um, offer within that training session uh, really will be lasting behavioral changes, for example? Um, so what I can say, like what I do to try and embed the learning with my clients is three-stage process, um, and that I will discuss in detail with clients. So we look very carefully at what happens before a training. So that's the detailed intake. Um, and then there's the during the training, which is the training itself. And then afterwards, so I follow, offer follow-ups um, and things like that, or um, advice on how organizations can make changes based on the training that we offer to make sure that there are some sort of more longer term results rather than everybody comes and sits in a room for a couple of hours and goes away and puts away the notes in a drawer and never looks at them again. Um, and the workshops I offer are really tailored to the audience. So both content and delivery. And I believe that's what makes a difference and adds value to what I offer. That's splendid to hear. Delivering the training opportunities to the audience or recipients mm -hmm. of the training, but also keeping in touch or keeping a relationship with them after the training ends. Mm -hmm. Very much so, very much so. Because, I mean, otherwise, I mean, I've been on training courses myself, right, where you think, gosh, this is amazing. I've learned so much. And then a week later, I, I've not done anything. Thing that I learned. So I think it's the longer term follow up as well that makes a difference and the organizational changes. I completely agree. Angela, in, in this era of rapid and fast change, mm -hmm. where companies have to go or, or are going through unexpected mm -hmm. transitions, you know, mm -hmm. teams forming with new members joining all the time and changing, mm -hmm. would you still say such teams would benefit from training to increase trust between them? Definitely. I mean, any organization or company would benefit from that, right? But I think even more so now, what we talked about, people are have been working home from home now, it's almost a year. Um, so many people have joined companies and are new and have actually never been into the office. On a practical note, I know companies have been doing or trying to do their best in this situation. I've heard anecdotes from people who received like goodie boxes to welcome them when they arrive, which is a really nice gesture, right? But let's not forget that people have been working with new team members for like in this way for a very long time. Um, so we have to be creative to think, how can you do some work to help build that trust and cohesion as a team? Um, and based on work that I've done in the past year, it is very possible to run these sessions online. Now, I'm not going to say I love it, um, but it, it is a good alternative. <laughs> I mean, I would much rather be in a room with people. I think that's a completely different um, energy 
but this is working and it's better than not doing anything at all and just leaving people be. We can do assessments, for example, on communication styles um, so that people can understand more about their colleagues, which um, improves interpersonal communication skills. Um, and if you look at sort of team formation, like Tuckman in, um, well, in the 60s studied how teams develop and he identified four very distinct um, phases of team development. I mean, I, you're nodding, so I know you're familiar. Um, forming, storming, norming, and performing. And each phase serves a purpose. And when teams go through those phases, you see the interpersonal dynamics that become visible among, amongst the team members. Um, and all that is still very relevant today. I mean, I think it's a necessary part of a team's evolution. And it's when people go through these stages is when they come together from being individuals or strangers to becoming a team. Um, and that's what creates and builds that level of trust and trust undermines good. Like if you don't have trust, I mean, to say that undermines performance because people are sort of busy with interactions between each other rather than focusing on the job at hand. So I think there's definitely a place for that even today. That's very interesting. The fact that you mentioned the Techman module also shows that just because the technology has changed, mm -hmm. uh, doesn't mean people, I mean, people usually stay the same, the, you know, the behavior yeah. and working together. So I completely agree. No, definitely. So you mentioned unconscious bias and the training that you give on it. Yeah. And I've seen people divided into two camps. One is with it. Mm -hmm. And one that says unconscious bias training simply doesn't work. And I yeah. think I know which your camp on, you're on. <laughs> But can you share with us your opinion on why should companies offer unconscious bias training? Well, I mean, I'm offering it, so I must be in the camp that's for it, right? Um, but I definitely agree. So uh, there are there's governments that have stopped offering it. I know that. Um, there's lots of uh, research pro well, for it and against it. Um, and so, like you say, there are definitely two camps on this. And I'm quite upfront with clients who ask for me to run their training. Unconscious bias is a big issue, mainly because it's something we're not aware of, right? Nobody wants to be a bad person. So we'll say, oh, I'm not biased at all. But I beg to differ. We're all biased. Yeah, bias is really just a preference for one thing over another, if you think about it. Like I can say, oh, I'm biased towards a certain flavor of ice cream. Yeah. So we're all biased because we all have preferences. It's only when those biases get in the way of making fair decisions or cause people to behave in ways that are discriminatory or excluding others just because of their differences, that's when it becomes a problem in the workplace. Um, and coming back to your question, yes, studies do show that when people have attended a very general unconscious bias training, they actually end up being more biased. Yeah, it's almost as if they've had a free pass, kind of, I've been on the training, I'm not biased anymore, and then they end up being more biased, which defeats the purpose entirely. The other side of the picture, uh, which is where I'm standing is, is that when the training is tailored or linked to something, so um, think of unconscious bias training for recruitment or promotion panels, for example, yeah, then it's more relevant. Um, and it's an excellent first step to raising awareness and often just starting that conversation about bias, about difference, normalizing it. But yes, agree. I, I like I would say what I said earlier as well, it has to be accompanied by longer term organizational changes. You can't have a one off training, tick that box and be done with it and say all my employees are now very unbiased. And which is why I love it when I can support and advise an organization on the aftercare in a way. Um, to improve practices throughout the employee life cycle, to be more inclusive and mitigate bias. I also believe organizations need to become friends with data. Because if you are thinking you're not biased as an organization, we'll study your data, look at your hiring 
um, and promotional practices and, and, and notice the trends. So that's where I stand on this. Oh, thank you. That's quite thought-provoking. And I find it interesting, like you said, no one wakes up and say, I want to be a bad person, right? No. But it's important to recognize that we all have some sort of biases, unconscious biases. Yeah. It's just about being aware of it all the time. Very much so. When we talk about gender inequality, and training that can be done in the workplace to re reduce it. Mm -hmm. What is your preferred approach? Um, are we talking about workshops that include both men and women, or is there something else that you usually do? Um, well, this links a little bit to my answer to your earlier question. So a lot of work has been done and is being done um, to raise awareness about this issue, which is a good thing. Yeah, but for me, the work that I do or how I contribute to this is the trainings that I offer on unconscious bias and inclusion, but then more with the focus on gender. So yes, and I very much prefer and really advocate for workshops for everyone. I don't like and believe in running, for example, all women workshops. There's definitely a time and place for that. For example, there's one I run on personal impact for women, which is obviously a women-only one. Um, but if we're talking about gender and inclusion in the workplace, well, then we need to be inclusive from the get-go. And you really have to have everyone in the room and part of that conversation. And again, the workshops are really just a small part of the wider solution. And the wider solution lies in organizational change and practices. It, it starts at recruitment. That sounds good. Thank you for sharing that. Now, we've been talking a bit about the work that you do. And I know that you're passionate about the work. So that is my um, question is, how did you become an organizational psychologist? Was that something that you always knew you were destined for it? Or was there a turning point in your career? <laughs> um, no, I didn't always know this. Um, I mean, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist. So um, I studied social with clinical psychology for my undergrad. I knew I wanted to work with people. So then I went to study counseling. Organizational psychology is something I sort of chose to specialize in after I'd been working for a while. And I realized how much we needed to create better workplaces. It's something I really enjoy and I was told I'm good at, so I continued. But to be fair, we spend so much more of our time at work than we do at home. Well, pre-COVID anyway, now we're home all the time working, but that's different. So, and I feel very strongly that if you are spending so much time at work, it needs to be worth it. Um, I wanted to help create workplaces where people like to show up where they can do things they enjoy well, most of the time. Um, and for example, where they can combine having a career and a family. And if you say turning point, I think to me, um, well, when I had children, I think that was a very large part of the decision that I made in a way. Because if I was going to be away from my family, I wanted to do something worthwhile or something that felt worthwhile to me, um, but also something that was useful to other people and brought value to their lives. And creating better workplaces is that. Is it, That is my motivation. So, yes, I love what I do, but I kind of fell into it. <laughs> Interesting. And, yeah, I mean, quite a timely issue. Like you said, the lines are sort of blurring between working at yeah. work and being at home because you I work know. from home. Yeah. <laughs> so what gets you going any particular areas of the work that you enjoy the most in it hmm, that's a good one um honestly i love everything i'm doing at the moment i mean it's my business so i have been able to craft it to do the things that i'm good at things that give me energy um and where i know i can really add value to the lives of the people and to the organizations as a whole um on the training side of things i love working with hr and lnd professionals and really getting to the heart of what they need and then I create and deliver. So that's the fun part. Um, I also work with a few clients in coaching and individual therapy. 
and that has its own rewards. It's there's something very special in being able to hold space for someone so they can reflect and work on whatever is going on for them. That sounds good. Um, I mean, quite a lot of nuggets of wisdom on unconscious bias, inclusion, and emotional intelligence. So thank you very much, Anzela, for sharing all of that with us. Can you tell us mm-hmm. maybe how can people stay in touch with your work or contact you? Sure. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and I also have a website, which is thrivecube.com. That's with a Q. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. And we'll also link your site in the description for this episode so people can reach out to it easily. And thank you. Thank you again, Rodzella, for being with us. I had fun. Thanks a lot. Likewise. We have now reached the end of this episode of Mind Learning Up podcast. Thank you for listening and being with us. To hear more episodes in the upcoming weeks, please rate and subscribe to this podcast series. This was Tarek, the Learning Scientist. Have a good week and see you in the next episode.